Now this morning I'll be preaching a sermon entitled Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son of God. And I'll be preaching this particular sermon from the book of John. Specifically, I will be preaching from selected scriptures from the book of John. But before I preach those particular words and exposit them, I'd like to just give you an overview of the book of John. Now, this particular book was written by the Apostle John. And as far as the authorship go, we know that John wrote this book. However, if you read through this particular gospel, you will find, and those of you have, will have found that nowhere does John's name appear as the author of this particular gospel. So the question is, how do we know that John wrote this particular book? Well, the answer is found in what we refer to as church tradition, meaning that some of our early church fathers attested to the fact that the Apostle John wrote this particular book. And then that truth was passed on to another church father and then from one church generation to another right up until this current church generation. And specifically in this case, our church father, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, meaning he was a student of the Apostle John. He walked with him as the Apostle John carried out his ministry. And he attested to the fact and spoke to Irenaeus, who was his disciple, that John, towards the latter stages of his earthly ministry, while he was living in the city of Ephesus, under the inspiration of our God in heaven, John penned this particular gospel. So we have that fact being authorized and told by Polycarp to Irenaeus right up into our generation, so we can trust that John is the author of this gospel. Now, when John wrote this gospel, he had a few different objectives in mind. Some of those objectives include the fact that he wrote it in order for it to be both supplementary and complementary to the Synoptic Gospels. And when I say the Synoptic Gospels, the majority of you know that I'm pointing to the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, meaning they were written from the same point of view. In other words, they were written from the same perspective. So many of the accounts, many of the narratives and stories that we find in those three Gospels about Jesus Christ and his ministry, they harmonize and they provide us with many of, the, many of the similar information. But John, when he wrote this Gospel, he wrote it to be not only complimentary because you will find some of those same accounts about Jesus Christ within the Gospel of John, but he also wrote it to be supplementary, meaning when you read it, you will find that John provides us with unique information not found in the Synoptic Gospels. He provides us with additional information about Jesus Christ, his life, and his ministry while he was here on earth. So John wrote this Gospel to be distinct from the Synoptic Gospels. And although the Synoptic Gospels were already written when John wrote this particular gospel, we know that he did not depend 
on that early information to write this gospel because John was a direct apostle of Jesus Christ. So he walked with him for those fateful three years. So he literally saw Jesus Christ perform all the miracles, the seven signs that he attests to within this particular gospel. And so based on his memory and under the inspiration of our Father in heaven, he wrote this gospel. And the primary purpose as to why he wrote it, he makes it very clear in John chapter 20, verse 31. Please turn your Bibles to the book of John chapter 20, verse 31. And also include verse 30. Now here John lays out the purpose of why he wrote this book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written on this book, in this book, and here it is. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here John sets forth both his apologetic objective and his evangelistic objective of why he wrote this gospel. He wrote it from an apologetic standpoint in order to prove that Jesus was the Christ. He wrote it to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. He wrote it to prove that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the one that the Old Testament prophets spoke about and promised would come to save the world, to save the Jews, and to save the Gentiles. So John writes this gospel to prove that particular fact. But he also wrote it in order to establish it as an evangelistic book. Because he says right there that he also wrote it so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you will have life in his name. And when he says that by believing, you will have life in his name, he's indicating that he wrote it in order that you may come to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And by believing in him, that you will receive the free gift of eternal life that you will have life in his name, meaning in his person. So these are the primary purpose and objectives of why John wrote this book. And being that that was his primary objective, this is the primary objective of my sermon today. Listen, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came out of the glory of heaven, wrapped himself in human flesh, sacrificed himself on the cross and glorified himself through our redemption. Now, I'm going to say that again. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, came out of the glory of heaven, wrapped himself in human flesh, sacrificed himself on the cross and glorified himself through our redemption. This is the primary message and point of my sermon today. And that primary point is taken directly from the words that John includes in his prologue or his introduction to this faithful rendition of Jesus Christ and his ministry. So please open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And I will read what John sets forth as his introduction. Now, John says, 
here in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he's referring to the John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now here, John, in his prologue, sets forth his objective of proving that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. And he begins that objective with the faithful words found in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And when John says, in the beginning, when he uses that particular phrase, he is establishing the fact and pointing to the truth that prior to the creation of the universe, prior to the creation of time, space, prior to the creation of all things in the material and immaterial, Jesus Christ, the Word, already existed. So what John is pointing to here is he's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ, the living Word, was eternal in nature. This is a statement of his eternal essence. This is a statement pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ has no beginning. He has no end. This points to the fact that he is self-existent. He is not dependent on any outside source for his being because everything came through him. Everything came after him. And we know this to be true because this same phrase is used by Moses in the creation account found in Genesis 1.1. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now here in the book of Genesis, Moses, who authored this particular book, which is one of the five books of what we know and referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Moses 
under the inspiration of God, uses this same phrase. He says in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And with the use of that particular phrase, Moses is doing the same thing that John did in chapter 1, verse 1 in the book of John. Moses is pointing to the fact that God the Father already existed prior to the creation of the heavens and the earth. He is pointing to the fact that God is eternal in nature and he was already in existence and then he spoke the entire universe into being. He is pointing to the fact that God the Father was in existence when the world, when the earth was without form, when the earth was void, when the darkness covered the deep. God existed. So when John uses this phrase in the book of John chapter 1, he is equating Jesus Christ with God the Father. He is pointing to the fact that they are both eternal in nature. He is pointing to the fact that they are both alpha and omega. He is pointing to the fact that they both are self-existent, that they have no beginning, that they have no end, that they always was, they are, and they always will be. This is also established in Hebrews 13, 8, when the word says about Jesus Christ that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That encompasses his immutability, meaning he does not change. And the reason why he does not change is because he is internal. He simply is. John then goes on after he says, in the beginning, he goes on to say, was the word. And although that verb was is so small, it produces a great amount of impact with the way that John utilizes it. Because that word is written in the past tense, So when John uses it here, he is using it to further emphasize the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He is further emphasizing that he is eternal in nature. And Jesus Christ himself attested to this fact. And we find Jesus Christ establishing the fact that he is eternal with God in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 58. Please turn your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 8. Verse 58. Now here we find Jesus Christ being persecuted by the Jews. And in that persecution account, the Jews then asked him, who do you say you are? And in verse 58, Jesus Christ responds with these faithful words. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, when Jesus Christ uses this title, I am, he is establishing the fact that he is the eternal God because that I am title is the same title that God the Father used to describe himself when he called Moses to go and deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And we find an account of God using this title in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14. Moses was shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, and God called 
him, appeared to him in the burning bush and spoke to him from that burning bush and commanded him to go and deliver the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt. And Moses, thinking that the Israelites would surely reject him if he trekked back to Egypt and told them that he was there to deliver them under the commandment of God, he then asked God, who should I say sent me? And we start here in verse 13 where Moses makes that statement. He said, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, here we have God attesting to the fact that he is I am. God attesting to the fact that he is the eternal one. God attesting to the fact that before everything was, before everything was, he was there already. And this is what Jesus Christ affirms in verse 58 in the Gospel of John, that he too is the I am. So he equates himself with the Father. So when Jesus Christ uses this term, this title, he's equating himself with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So after emphasizing that fact with the use of the verb was, the Apostle John then goes on in verse 1 of chapter 1, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, when John uses this term, the Word, what he is pointing to and meaning by the use of this word is that John understood that during the time that he was carrying out his ministry that he was seeking to evangelize both the Greeks and the Jews with the writing of this book. So this particular term, the word, is based on a compound construct of both Greek philosophical meaning and Old Testament Christian meaning. So at that point in time in the history of Rome, the Greeks used that particular term, the word, and understood it to mean divine wisdom. And at that particular time in history and prior in the Old Testament, the Christian meaning of the word meant God's self-expression of himself through revelation. It meant God's self-expression of himself through his truth. It meant God's self-expression of himself through creation and how he spoke it into being. So John combines both of those meanings into this term, the word, because he knew that both the Jews and the Greeks would understand that it represents deity, that it represents God. And then John goes on to personify that term, And he applies it to the person of Jesus Christ so that when we look at that term, the word, we can literally substitute the name of Jesus Christ because it represents his person. So we can read this particular verse in the beginning was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ was with God and Jesus Christ was God. This is what John 
is establishing through the use of the term, the word. And then John goes on to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And when John says that the word was with God, he is indicating that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, shared intimate, eternal fellowship with God the Father. He is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, shared intimate, eternal union with the Father. He is pointing to the fact that he shared intimate, eternal communion with the Father. He is pointing to the fact that he shared intimate, eternal glory with the Father, intimate, eternal power with the Father, intimate, eternal grace with the Father, intimate, eternal mercy with the Father, intimate, eternal plan of redemption to reconcile you and me unto him with the Father. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ was in heaven sharing a face-to-face relationship with God the Father as the first and second person of the Trinity, the Godhead. This is what John is pointing to with these faithful words. And then John goes on to say, after he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, he says, and the word was God. So John, having established that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, he brings this particular passage to a close by stating it in a fashion that cannot be denied. He states it very simply, that Jesus Christ was God. And when he does that, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ possessed all the attributes of God. He is establishing the fact that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of love. He is the embodiment of grace. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the embodiment of omnipotence. He is the embodiment of omniscience. He is the embodiment of omnipresence. For he is everywhere at all time. For he is eternal and he exists at all time. So this Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, is God And if you ever get into one of those discussions with someone who disputes the deity of God, and over the past three weeks, I'm a part of a Bible study at the Walt Disney Group where I work in Burbank, and we had a new individual come to worship with us. Every Wednesday we do it. And um, as I spoke to her before we started the Bible study, come to find out that she claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ. She claims to be an escaped Jehovah Witness because she grew up in that church. However, as we spoke, she affirmed that she denied the deity of Jesus Christ. So by the grace of God, I was blessed with lovingly challenging her in that belief. And the primary scripture that I used was this scripture right here, John 1.1. And as she repeated the scripture and ended it by saying, The word was God. I just pinned that back right into her mouth. So you just said, it says the the word was God, right? Jesus Christ was God. And then she tried to journey on, but I just brought her right back there and just stayed right there. Because the logos, the very word, the living word, Jesus Christ is God. So after John establishes that fact that Jesus Christ is God, 
In verse 14, he goes on to say that this word, this logos, this eternal son of God became flesh. Now, when he says that Jesus Christ became flesh, what he is pointing to is the fact that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who shared that intimate, eternal fellowship with God, who shared a face-to-face relationship with God, he gave up this heavenly status. He gave up his enthronement in heaven. That enthronement that we saw through the eyes of Isaiah, when Isaiah spoke of that vision, when God called him up to heaven into his very throne room and showed him his glory. And as Isaiah was before the enthronement of God in heaven, He points out that the cherubims and seraphims were before God worshiping him. And they said those faithful words, holy, holy, holy. Jesus Christ was right there receiving this degree of worship. And he gave up that splendor in heaven and came down to earth and became flesh. So when John says that he became flesh, He's also pointing to the fact that he took on human form. He took on a human body. He took on a human nature. But although he became flesh and became human, we must point out that he did not cease being God. He simply emptied himself, meaning he gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. This is what we refer to as the kenosis, Jesus Christ emptying himself, meaning he completely submitted to the will of the Father in heaven. So he became fully God, and as we say, fully man. This is the hypostatic union that we talk about. Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, being the incarnate one, possessing both a human nature and a divine nature. This is where the infinite God became finite man. This is where the supernatural God became natural man. This is where the invisible God became visible man. The finite being added to the infinite. The natural being added to the supernatural. The visible being added to the invisible. This is where he who transcended time and space became confined to form and substance. Jesus Christ became flesh. And then John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he uses that term dwelt, it is based on the Greek word which means to pitch a tent or to pitch a tabernacle. So what John is doing with the use of that specific term is that he is calling forth the the symbolism and the idea that we see in the book of Exodus when God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. And after the tabernacle was built, he filled it with his glory. We see this account in the book of Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Now here we have the account of God commanding Moses to build a tabernacle or a sanctuary, or the tent of meeting, where he said that he would meet with Moses as a man meets with a friend and speak to him face to face. 
This tabernacular sanctuary was to be established during this wilderness journey so that the people of Israel could come and worship God. And as Moses completed the building of this tabernacle, it says in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So when John uses the term dwelt, which means to pitch a tabernacle or a tent, the symbolism that he's using is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, pitching a human tent, meaning his body. And then because he did not cease being God, he then filled that human tent with his very glory. The same way the tent of meeting was filled with the Shekinah glory of God after it was built by Moses. And then John also is implying with the term that he dwelt among us, that this Jesus Christ, the God-man, lived with us. He walked with us. He taught us. Those very individuals who were alive during that point in time in history, he ministered to them. He performed signs and miracles attesting to the fact that he was none other than the promised Messiah. He healed the blind. He made the cripple walk. He made the deaf hear. He performed signs and wonders that were undeniable. He tabernacled among us. This is what John means when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then after establishing the fact that Jesus Christ lived with us, God from heaven living with sinful fallen man, he goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. And when the apostle John indicates that we have seen his glory, what he is pointing to here is that some of the apostles and some of the disciples saw his literal glory and his spiritual glory. Now, when he implies that they saw his literal glory, he is indicating that at certain points in times, they saw glimpses of the literal glory of Jesus Christ. And we find one of those specific instances in the Mount of Transfiguration found in um, the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And this is where Jesus Christ is with his disciples. And he, as he often did, those three that were very intimately entwined with him in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He took them up onto the mountain, and he transfigured himself. In other words, he transformed himself into his eternal state. And we have an account of that transfiguration right here in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, 
talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell in their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So here, Matthew describes the fact that these three apostles saw the literal glory of Jesus Christ because when he transformed himself into eternal state, he records that Jesus Christ's face shone like the sun and his garment became bright as light. That is attesting to the fact that his Shekinah glory, his literal glory was revealed to those three apostles. And as it was revealed to them, he records that they were terrified and they fell in their faith prostrate. Listen, this is the same position that we should be in as believers in Jesus Christ each and every day from a spiritual standpoint. We should have such reverence for God, such reverence for his greatness, his power, and his might, such reverence for the fact that he is the one who gave us life and he is the one that can take life. And because we know of that truth, then we should surrender and submit to him on a daily basis and pursue his righteousness. We should pursue his glory. We should pursue his work that he has designed for each and every one of of us to do. Each and every one of us should be prostrate spiritually before God, reverence him, reverencing him, respecting him to the point that we seek to live according to his word day in, day out, until we see his face in heaven. Amen? Amen. So here we have John attesting to the fact that Jesus Christ revealed his literal glory, but he's also implying that some of the apostles and some of the disciples saw his spiritual glory also. And when he speaks or implies that they saw his spiritual glory, he is indicating that they saw Jesus Christ display his spiritual glory through the display of his love as he tabernacled among the Jews during his time. He's pointing to the fact that they saw Jesus Christ display his grace. They saw him display his mercy. They saw him speak the truths of the kingdom of God. They saw him perform signs and wonders. This was a display of his spiritual glory. So when John says that they saw his glory, this is what he means. They saw both his literal glory and his spiritual glory. And then John goes on to say that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. And when John makes this statement, he's making it very clear after this great buildup of establishing who Jesus Christ is as the eternal son of God. He is further emphasizing the fact that when they saw his glory, the glory that they saw is the same glory possessed 
by the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So this is also an additional statement of equality. He is saying that the same glorious Son of God that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration in his eternal state is the same glorious Father in heaven who filled that tabernacle in the wilderness with his Shekinah glory. They are one and the same. They are inseparable. They form two of the persons of the Holy Trinity. This is what our good brother, the Apostle John, is pointing to when he says that they saw his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. And then he finishes out that passage by stating that they saw the glories of only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And why does John make this statement? Why does he add this abridgment at the end of it? Well, he does it to emphasize the goodness of God's character. These are two of God's attributes that magnifies and exemplifies the goodness of God's character. Because God's character is most exemplified in his grace, which is found in the plan of salvation, which, as the scriptures say, though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, meaning we all were spiritually dead, and there was absolutely nothing that we could do to revive ourselves, to seek God. But God drew us to him. He took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. And he displayed his grace by bestowing upon us his undeserved mercy, meaning that while we were supposed to receive the wages of death, which is what is established to be the punishment for sin because of his grace, motivated by his love, he did not condemn us to hell. But he simply says that if you believe, then he will give you the gift of salvation. So God is most exemplified through his grace, through his truth in the plan of salvation. And having said that, if there is anyone who's sitting in the house today, who for up until this point in time in your life, you have rejected the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You are now seated in the seat of a scoffer, and up until this point in your life, you have scoffed at God and said, I do not believe. You have not placed your faith and trust and accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You have not repented for your sin of rejecting him. And as the scriptures make it clear, the wages of sin is death. So God makes it very clear that for each and every one of you who are present today, who have rejected Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has promised condemnation, condemnation in hell. Jesus Christ himself said in John 3, 17 through 18, I came to save the world, not to condemn it. But if you do not believe, you have condemned yourself already. So you condemn yourself to hell already. Where Jesus Christ says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus Christ says that there you will be thrown into the uttermost darkness, into the unquenching fire, and spend all eternity separated from God. However, our God loves 
you. And because of his grace, the punishment that you were supposed to receive, the wrath that he has stored up for you who have rejected him, he says that he will not place that wrath upon you if you simply believe in his son, Jesus Christ. If you simply believe that when he sacrificed himself on the cross, when he came out of the glory of heaven, when he wrapped himself in human flesh and glorified himself, he did it to redeem you, to purchase you from the hands of Satan. So I compel you this morning, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, accept him now. Run from the wrath to come and run into the trust of Jesus Christ. Run into the love of Jesus Christ. Run into the mercy of Jesus Christ. Run into the peace of Jesus Christ. Run into the heavenly promise that he has stored up for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to extol the virtues of our great God this morning. Thank you for receiving his word. And I sincerely hope that each and every one of you embrace these great truths, though you may have heard them before, may it cause you to embrace them at an even deeper level, may it cause you to go out and run for God unlike you've ever ran for him before, may it cause you to be convicted, to continue to pursue the work that he has stored up for you to do here on earth. May he use us as the church within this Conejo Valley to do exactly that. Thank you.